The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of God for the people of God. I was at a conference last week and I ran into Stephen Whitmer, who's one of the pastors of one of the churches in the Village Green Collective up in New England. And it was really fun just to be able to tell him, hey, a bunch of people in Omaha, Nebraska are praying for you and for your church. And uh, I love when I get to bring tidings from all of you to other leaders and pastors that I happen to run into that we pray for and support. And so it's encouraging this morning to be able to remember what God's doing in New England together in prayer. Uh, my name's Bob. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. Before we dive into the book of Philippians this morning, I want to talk to you for a few minutes about a project that we need to engage together as a church family, and it's going to affect our use of this building in the beginning of next year. So I want to prepare you for that and talk a little bit about it. So let me begin with three data points for you. Um, first of all, last Sunday, we ministered to 389 kids from nursery to catechism. So that's just ages 0 to 11. You're like, is that good news? I don't <laughs> Sounds good. It's good. We got a lot of kids here. Add to that 84 6th to 12th graders in student ministry last week. And then the third data point is this. In the last quarter of the year, from July through September, quarter three, we hosted 236 different events in this building not including this gathering on Sunday mornings. That is a lot of stuff. That includes everything from weddings to funerals to you know, basketball practices, Bible studies, any and every way that various people use this building and that we make it available, that's what that includes. And so those stats reveal two of the greatest stewardships and responsibilities that the Lord has given us as a church. Uh, one, the discipleship of the next generation, and two, the practice of hospitality. And so in order to maximize our stewardship in those two particular areas, um, it's time for us to invest in some updates to this building. And that's what we're going to do beginning in January. Uh, when we purchased this property four years ago, we spent money to update this room primarily in this level of the building. We left the lower level alone. We knew we'd need to come back in the future and address some things there. And that future is now. Um, as you probably know, construction costs continue to rise. Uh, our space needs continue to grow, as those statistics show. And we are debt-free as a church, and we're in a healthy financial position. And so in 2024, we're going to take the opportunity to do the rest of the work we need to do 
uh, in this building. So I want to describe what that's going to mean and look like. Uh, we're going to start down at the gym doors. At the, if you've ever come in the downstairs entrance at the very end by west side on the back of the parking lot, we're going to start at those doors down there where you come into the gym. We're going to refresh all the classrooms along that downstairs hallway including subdividing a couple of them so that we end up with eight classrooms instead of six, which will help us a lot with Cormdale kids. Uh, we're going to replace all the south side windows on the building, which are original to 1967, and they feel like it. So if you thought that colored glass was on purpose, I'm sure it was in 1967, but it's weird now. So we're going to replace all that. Uh, we're going to tear out and rebuild the courtyard, which has flooded twice since we've been here and is an absolute drainage nightmare and leads to a bunch of other problems. So we're going to fix that. And then we're going to remodel the fellowship hall directly below us uh, and add another set of bathrooms in the northeast corner, which will help a lot in how we use that room. As you might imagine, all of that is also going to include a lot of unseen and unsexy work of HVAC and plumbing and all the stuff that you will never see and never appreciate except for the functionality it leads to, you will be happy that that exists, all right? Um, so with all of that work done, we will have a building that's modernized and maximized for the ministry and stewardship that we wanna continue to practice as we make this building available to others and as we do our best to disciple the next generation. Now. As you might imagine, all of that work comes with a price tag. And so just as a comparison, let's talk about what they're spending on Memorial Stadium. $450 million for seven Saturdays in the fall, right? So you could have that or friends for the low, low price of only two and a half million dollars, you could have a fully renovated church building. So that's what it's gonna cost, two and a half million dollars. Um, yeah. A lot less than Memorial Stadium for a lot better cause, am I right? Uh, that's still a lot of money, I realize that, but just to put it in perspective for you, uh, the value of this property on our balance sheet is $7 million, and the value, insurance replacement value, is $11 million, and so that's a very reasonable expense proportional to the value of the asset that we as a family are responsible for stewarding. So um, of that $2.5 million, we already have $500,000 in cash. And so between right now and the end of 2024, so the next 15 months, uh, we'd like to raise the additional $2 million over and above our normal giving. And so this morning, I just want to put that need before you, invite you to participate in it, take ownership of it, and take part in that. By the way, if you are a guest or this is not your church or you're not a Christian, this is not for you, all right? I'm talking to the people who this is their church and we together are responsible for this. So I know that for some of you, it's like, oh, every time I go to church, they talk about money. Here I am at church, they're talking about money. Um, this is a particular moment uh, for particular uh, people who are taking responsibility together for this mission. So I wanna remind you and actually celebrate this fact. Um, we together are a very generous church. Um, our ministry budget right now, our giving this year is 98% of what our budgeted need is, which means just every year we just step forward and we are faithful to uh, the demands and needs of our ministry budget. And I want to remind you, we raised $4 million four years ago to buy this building in the first place. All right, so we've done this before. Uh, we are capable of this. And as we uh, pitch in together, 
uh, we can absolutely do this. Now, as a human being, I'm a cynical and skeptical person, so I get worried when churches start talking about building projects because uh, churches do weird stuff with this. But I want you to know as your pastor, though I am personally skeptical, I'm also absolutely unapologetic about asking you to invest in this because of the stats that I just showed you. Um, by hosting 236 events last quarter, it should be clear to you that we are putting this facility to work for the sake of the kingdom of God and to bless our neighbors. Like anybody who asks, our team is like, if we can say yes, we say yes, all right? So um, we wanna maximize our stewardship of this building and uh, I'm unapologetic in saying, hey, to do that, we need to spend some money and so let's do this together. So I trust that you will keep giving faithfully to the normal ministry budget and then I trust you'll consider how the Lord might want you to give over and above that to what we're calling Facility 2.0. <laughs> See what I did there? $2 million, version 2.0 of our building. I know it's not lost on you. So uh, if you would like to direct giving in that direction, you can write that on the memo line of your check. And if you give online, you'll find a drop-down menu where you can direct funds in that way. So uh, again, this is between now and the end of next year. So uh, we got a long time to sort of think about the role that you might want to play. And um, I would like to encourage you to jump in and let's trust the Lord together to provide for this need. If you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to answer them or to direct you to someone who can. Uh, we have a, a great team of deacons who serve in our church and a great operations team. And so between all of them, whatever, no matter how specific your question might be, um, I'm sure I can direct you to someone who can answer it. So uh, thanks for uh, listening to that. Thanks for engaging that together. Uh, trust that we'll pray together for the Lord's provision. And uh, let's turn our attention then uh, to the book of Philippians. As you've seen from this series graphic, our subtitle for this series is A People of Joy in an Age of Despair. And what we're trying to capture with that subtitle is the idea that Christians are a peculiar people. You guys are weird in a good way. Um, what it means to be a Christian is that you're part of a counterculture within the broader culture. You're the same as the people around you, and yet you're different. You're part of society, and yet you're also part of kind of an alternate society called the church. Christians are just ordinary people drawn from all walks of life and all segments and sectors of society. If you were to take time during the greeting time to work your way around the room and meet everybody who's sitting here this morning, you would meet within this little church iron workers, electricians, and carpenters. You'd meet teachers, professors, administrators. You'd meet doctors and nurses and medical students. You'd meet counselors and therapists and social workers. You'd meet artists and athletes firemen and financial planners. Every vocation in our city be reflected in the disposition of this room and this community. And furthermore, if you looked at a map of the people who make up Cormdale Church and just asked where they live, almost every neighborhood and every zip code of our city would be represented among us. In one sense, we're just a microcosm of our city, just like everyone else. And yet in another sense, we're different because 
We follow the way of Jesus, and that sets us apart from other human beings and makes us distinct and peculiar. The ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans were compelled by the idea of citizenship. What does it mean to be a citizen? In fact, modern democracy has its origin in the Greek city-states. It was among the Greek-speaking peoples that the rights and responsibilities of citizenship first came to be expressed. And as the early Christians began to work out what it means to belong to this countercultural community called the church, they landed on this idea of citizenship. That word and that idea lies at the heart of our passage this morning. The literal translation of Philippians 1.27 is, live as worthy citizens of the gospel. When you think about what it means for you to be a citizen, what comes to mind? Is it primarily your citizenship in a nation, a country? Is it primarily the civic duties you might have as an American? Or when you think of what it means to be a citizen, is the first thing that comes to your mind, oh, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that has a certain set of rights and responsibilities that comes with it. See, when you become a Christian, you become a citizen in the kingdom of God. When Jesus came on the scene in the gospel of Mark, proclaiming the gospel, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the king of this kingdom. The church is the embassy of this kingdom. And the gospel is the constitution of this kingdom. To be a Christian is to be a citizen of God's kingdom. And the question the Apostle Paul wants the Philippian church to ask, and the question the Holy Spirit wants you and I to ask, is are you living as a worthy citizen of the gospel of Christ? Are you living as a worthy citizen of the kingdom of God? Well, how would we know? What does that look like? What is this citizenship Involved. The end of Philippians chapter 1 shows us what gospel citizens do and why they do it. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. What gospel citizens do and why they do it. Let's think together about what it means for us to be citizens of the kingdom of God. So first, three things this passage shows us that gospel citizens do. Here's the first thing. They stand together. Look at Philippians 1, verse 27. It says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, we Americans tend to be very action-oriented people. Just look at our films. Um, when we think of accomplishing meaningful things for God, we tend to think of achieving, accomplishing, advancing things, doing something. Paul wants to remind us, actually, just standing firm is one of the most important things. If you've ever built a bonfire, then you know that if you scatter those logs apart, that fire will die out quickly. The only way that fire burns hot is if those logs stand together. 
Or maybe you've been paying attention to the news lately, you've seen uh, some of the labor union strikes that have been happening. First it was the Hollywood screenwriters and then the United Auto Workers. And what you'll notice is that one of the simple things labor unions do when they go on strike is they stand together. Like one worker going on strike is just called a personal day, right? <laughs> when a bunch of people go on strike together, they stand together and that standing together has power. Yesterday, as Michael mentioned, in this room, we held a funeral for our dear brother, Ram Khatri, who passed away from cancer at age 35. And Ram was from Nepal. He had immigrated here in 2015. And yesterday, this room was packed with hundreds of Nepali citizens who showed up to stand together in support of Ram and in support of his wife, cheering and their son, James. A member of their community had passed away and they came to stand together in solidarity to show their love and concern. Likewise, citizens of God's kingdom have a kind of solidarity with one another. One of the things we must do and are called to do as gospel citizens is just to stand together. We're united by, this text says, one spirit, that is the indwelling spirit of God. And so Paul says, hey, whether I come to see you or whether I remain absent, what I want to hear is that you're standing firm in one spirit, that you're standing faithfully together, that there's a unity and a solidarity in your life together. Listen, here's what I can tell you. Life is long and discipleship to Jesus is challenging. And if you're going to make it for the long haul, if you're going to be faithful as a citizen of God's kingdom for your entire life, you're not going to make it without community. You're not going to make it without some people standing together with you, alongside you, encouraging you in the burdens and joys of a life of discipleship to Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, one thing gospel citizens do, one thing gospel citizens do is just to stand together, to stand firm, to encourage one another in persistence and perseverance and faithfulness over time. The first thing gospel citizens do is we stand together. But second, notice, gospel citizens strive together. The end of verse 27 says, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The word striving here is soon athluntes, literally athleting together. Listen, if you've ever been an athlete, part of a team, you know the whole team has to strive together in order to be successful. If just one or two players don't give it their all, the whole team suffers. That's the idea here, that gospel citizens strive together. We together are immersed in a worthy cause. We're striving together for, notice, the faith of the gospel. The faith of the gospel. There is a faith and there is a gospel. And that's what unites us and that's what we strive for together. One of the best things about Christianity is that it has definitive content. Like the gospel is the message of Christianity. And so what that means is you can either embrace or reject the faith. You can either embrace or reject the message of the gospel, but it is what it is. And gospel citizens strive together 
for that faith and for that gospel. Last week, I spent some time with D.A. Carson, one of the great biblical scholars of our age. He's the co-founder of the Gospel Coalition, which I have the privilege of serving with. Um, he's a prolific author and really just one of the most respected New Testament scholars of the past 50 years globally. And he said this last week. I've heard him say it before, but he said it again. He said, one generation believes the gospel. The next generation assumes the gospel. The next generation forgets the gospel. Friends, we must not assume the gospel. And we must not forget the gospel. And we must not revise the gospel. Rather, we are called to strive together for the faith of the gospel. That's what we're called together to do as citizens of God's kingdom. We strive together for the faith of the gospel once for all delivered to the saints. And then notice verse 28, as we do this, not frightened in anything by your opponents. So two observations. One, we will have opponents. Two, no big deal. Okay? There are two errors that Christians commonly fall into, especially in our culture and our moment. Error number one is wanting everyone to like us. And so just imagining, if we're just good enough Christians, we'll never have any opponents. No one will ever disagree with us. The other error is fighting with everyone for no reason. Christians tend to either be pacifists or pugilists. We either want to avoid conflict or we want to fight with everyone. And Paul shows us that actually the gospel carves a nice path in between those two. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you will have opponents. And you shouldn't be frightened by that. The word here is literally intimidated. You shouldn't be intimidated by that. Because you know what the story of Christianity is? I mean, it's good for us to remember this. Do you know what the story of Christianity is? It's the story of opponents of God becoming citizens of his kingdom. Like, that's how this whole thing works. That's how this whole movement got started. Opponents becoming citizens. So we need to be honest about the fact that there are people who do oppose and will oppose the gospel, but we need not be frightened or intimidated by them. In fact, we should love them as Jesus invited us to and as he modeled in his life so that we can tell more stories like the Apostle Paul of opponents of his kingdom becoming citizens of his kingdom. That's the gospel. A few years ago now, I was invited to be a guest at the Midwest Free Thought Conference, which is sort of like a regional new atheist conference. It was held at UNO in this big conference center on campus, and I was one of only three theists in the room. Not Christians, just theists, all right? One of three theists in the room. And I got into this opportunity because I have a friend named Sarah who is a militant atheist and also a wonderful human being. And we get together occasionally and debate and discuss and talk about God and religion and the Bible and all of that. And we built this camaraderie and she was planning this conference. And so she asked me to come and sit on a panel and basically field questions from the audience for an hour. It was a blast. It was so much fun. Here's why. Because it was an opportunity for me to practice this verse. Like, on the one hand, it is actually true that most atheists, especially most like new atheists, are opponents of the gospel. 
Like they actually do not believe the gospel and they think we're nuts for believing it. So they actually do oppose the message of Christianity. Sometimes they're a little obnoxious about it even, but also they're just people. Like they're your neighbors. They live down the street from you. They work where you work. They're our neighbors in the city. And so it's fun to say, here, I wanna go into a room of people who actually are opposed to the message that I'm giving my life to proclaim, and they're just fellow human beings. So I wanna to try to just relate to them as fellow humans and be charitable in disagreement and try to maybe even answer questions in a way that might soften some of their opposition. It was a lot of fun. As kingdom citizens, the text is saying, listen, we don't fear people who disagree with us. We strive together for the faith of the gospel in a peaceful, calm way. Like we're just, here's what you get to say as a Christian. Hey, you know what? This faith has existed for 2,000 years. That's just my tribe, man. We're not changing it. Like we're Christians. We believe certain things. That's okay. Christians have always believed certain things. In a world that always wants you to, they're okay with you being a Christian as long as you like modify your beliefs to fit whatever they wish they were. You're just gonna say, hey, you know what? I'm just a Christian. This is what we believe. It's okay. We strive together for the faith of the gospel and we do it in a peaceful, gentle, calm way that's not frightened or intimidated by opponents. And it says at the end of verse 28, This is a sign, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The this here, what this is it talking about? It's talking about the fact of opposition. Like the fact that people oppose the gospel is a sign. A sign points to something. A sign identifies something. Opposition points to the fact that there really is a difference between those who embrace the message of Christianity and those who don't. It's a sign that Jesus Christ really does cause human beings to have to make a choice. Am I going to embrace this message or am I not? Opposition is a sign that you have in fact chosen a side in this question. You're not in the neutral middle. You have taken sides with Jesus. And his message forces every human being to make a decision. Will I embrace this? Or will I not? And that brings us to our third point. Gospel citizens stand together. We strive together. And finally, gospel citizens suffer together. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, if you have been around for three or four weeks and you remember Aaron's sermon from Acts 16 where he talks about how this church in Philippi got started, and then if you were here a couple weeks ago and we talked about the fact he's probably writing this from Rome and he's chained to another Roman soldier, what conflict is he talking about? He's talking about opposition to the gospel. He's like, hey, you saw that I had that conflict in Philippi when this church first started? And now you hear that I still have it. I'm still being opposed for the message that I proclaim. And he says, you know what? It's been granted to you. Literally, it's been gifted to you. It's been graced to you. It's God's kindness to you. That you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's Christ-like. Now, 
There are two kinds of suffering. General suffering and Christian suffering. General suffering is the kind of suffering that you and I share just as members of the human race. Things like cancer, things like conflict, losing a job, all the brokenness that happens in our relationships, in our circumstances, and in our world because we live in a fallen world, that's just general suffering, right? Christians don't get a pass on that. We experience the effects of the fallen world just like everybody else does. There's a lot of the suffering in our lives that just falls in the category of general human suffering. Yes, we experience the same suffering that every human being experiences. And also, as citizens of the kingdom of God, there's another kind of suffering we experience you might call Christian suffering. And that's the suffering that comes, as this verse says, for the sake of Christ. That's suffering you experience because you are a Christian and people don't like that. Or that brings a certain kind of conflict. There's a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 4 that talks about this kind of suffering. And here's what Peter says. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Part of what we need as Christians in America is just a bigger category of Christian suffering being God's grace to us. Somebody's not going to like you because you're a Christian. Happen to Jesus. Like it's okay. Instead of always being despairing about that or discouraged by that, just like, that's, the life we're, that's the life you signed up for. What would you expect? When you signed up to follow Jesus, did you think your path was not going to include suffering? Because his did. Like you're a follower of him. So of course, right? And notice Peter talks about being insulted for the name of Christ, which implies that some of the suffering that we experience is social suffering. It's things like ostracism and ridicule and being shamed or denigrated because you follow Christ. You have probably experienced this at your workplace or in your school or among the group of friends that you run with that really don't like Christianity. So following Jesus is going to expose you to some ridicule, to some people who aren't thrilled about what you're giving your life to or the things you profess. And what this text is saying is like, yeah, that's okay. Gospel citizens suffer together. We share general human suffering, but also we know together the specific kind of suffering that comes because you're a Christian. Like when people just sort of have it out for you because you follow Jesus. We there's a certain kind of solidarity that comes when you realize like, oh, that happened to you too? Like you've been in that conversation too? You've been ridiculed in that way too? Oh, okay, cool, I'm not alone. We need to know that that's normal and that we together experience those kinds of things. And so there's a beautiful kind of unity and solidarity that comes when we just expect, oh yeah, it's been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his sake, like Paul did and like the church in Philippi did, and like Christians have all throughout history. It's very normal for society to treat you a little bit like an outsider because you are a Christian. That's the norm. And God's people need to be for one another, a community of support. And also, when we experience those things, it actually moves us into a deeper kind of fellowship with Jesus. Because when you experience the isolation 
that comes from being ridiculed or categorized because you're a Christian, you know who you can identify with? The Lord Jesus Christ. And you know who comforts you? The Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit. Gospel citizens suffer together. And part of what Philippians is trying to do to go back to the, the tagline of our series is just to say, hey, we should be a people of joy in an age of despair. Like when you suffer for the name of Jesus, what you shouldn't do is despair because that's just what everyone around you does. What we should do instead is to rejoice. All right, cool. Happened to Jesus. I got a community of people that know what that's like. We together can seek to love those who ridicule us, bless those who curse us, walk in the way of Jesus. You're not meant to stand or to strive or to suffer on your own. God has given us one another. Like we get to do this together as citizens of God's kingdom. So what do gospel citizens do? Well, they stand together, they strive together, and they suffer together. That's what this passage shows us. But the second question I said I wanted to answer is why do they do it? Like why? Why would we sign up for that? That sounds, you know, like some work like some suffering. Why do we do that? Why would anyone want to be a citizen of this kingdom that includes suffering and hardship? We'll go back to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or as you should see in a footnote, it might read, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. There are two ways to hear that. The first way to hear it is like this. Hey, you better show yourself worthy. You better live up to what God expects of you. You better do your part after what Jesus has done for you. Here's the second way to hear it. Let your life show the worth and the value of what Jesus has done for you. Sounds pretty different, doesn't it? The second of those is the force of this passage. And unless you understand that, you'll get it backwards. This passage is not saying, hey, Christian, live up to what Jesus has done for you. What it's saying is, hey, live out of what Jesus has done for you. Live like the citizen you are. Now, a lot of us have grown up, actually, most of us in our society, whether it was in our family of origin, in our schooling, in our workplace, on a sports team, in any kind of competitive endeavor, we have learned for our whole lives, hey, you know what? Like, if you want a spot on the team, you got to earn it. Like, if you want to show that you belong in this family, you know, you better, like, show it. Hey, if you want a promotion at this job, you better earn it. Like we're just used to having to prove ourselves worthy of whatever thing we're trying to pursue. And so when you hear this text say, live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, that's probably how you hear it. It's like, well, here's another place where I gotta, I gotta show myself worthy. I gotta live up to the standard. But see, this text is actually saying the exact opposite of that. It's saying, listen, let your life show, display the value, the worth of the gospel, of what Christ has done for you. 
To go back to what we said a few weeks ago, grace leads to gratitude. There's just that same principle in play. Live like the citizen you are. Live out of the new identity Christ has given you. Live in light of the citizenship he has graced you with and purchased for you in his life, death, and resurrection. That's why we do it. Why would we live as gospel citizens? Well, because we're so grateful for what God has done to bring us into his kingdom. In the fall of 2007, my wife Lee and I stood in the U.S. consulate in Guangzhou, China, to take the oath of citizenship on behalf of our daughter, Grace, who was born as a Chinese citizen but became a United States citizen upon her adoption into our family. She was 16 months old at the time. She didn't understand what citizenship meant. She couldn't take a vow of citizenship. But by virtue of entering into our family, she also entered into all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of citizenship, just by virtue of the fact that she was now part of our family. Something like that has happened for you as a Christian. By grace, apart from works, you have been adopted into God's family through the work of Jesus Christ. And therefore, as a result of that adoption, you've also become a citizen of his kingdom. Now. Live like who you are. Live out the values of this kingdom. Live as a citizen of this kingdom. That's what this text is saying. Live as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ, not in order to prove your worth, but in order to show the great worth and value of what Christ has done for us. Amen. Yeah, if you believe the good news of what Christ has done, here's what we're going to be like. We're going to, Stand together. We're going to strive together for the faith of the gospel because it's such good news. We want people to know it and we want it to be defended and proclaimed and declared. And we're going to suffer together and realize, yep, you know what? As citizens in this kingdom, we're sojourners in this world. This is not our home. You know, we're, we're exiles. We're outsiders. This place doesn't define us. As Paul will say later on in chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, you're a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so, yeah, you're never, right, you're never fully at home in this world, and that's okay. Live as a citizen of where you actually belong. Let's pray for his grace to help us do that. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your wonderful grace and for the good news of your gospel. And thanks that you have invited us into your family and made us citizens of your kingdom where you are king, where the gospel is the constitution and where the church is the little outpost or embassy where we experience and live out that citizenship. Would you... Renew us this morning in our sense of what it means to be citizens of your kingdom. Would you help us to see our identity first and primarily as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and only secondarily as citizens of Omaha, Nebraska or of the United States of America? Let us first and foremost be citizens of the kingdom of God
And would you help us live out that citizenship in ways that bring you glory, that bring good to the world around us, and that show forth the value and beauty of what you've done. We pray for our good and for your glory.